Hello, everyone. This is Lou Rosenfeld, and welcome to the Rosenfeld Review Podcast. I am here with Chris Nossel. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing good. Hi, Lou. Great to have you. Um, Chris is uh, someone who um, I've worked with now over a number of years uh, as an author. Uh, he and Nathan Shedroff uh, wrote Make It So, which is such a cool book, uh, uh, taking uh, film and television uh, shows from sci-fi and, and using all those interesting ideas in sci-fi uh, to show us what uh, the future of interaction design might be. And now he's done a new book, just came out a couple weeks ago for us called Designing Agent of Technology, AI That Works for People. So Chris, I want to talk about AI um, and I have a feeling it actually plays in with your new gig. Uh, Chris was at Cooper for many years. Uh, you also uh, may not realize, but he was one of the co-authors of uh, one of the recent editions of About Face. He is now at IBM, where he is the global practice design lead for travel and transportation, which sounds really cool. <laughs> it's a lot of syllables. So It's a lot, but uh, and, and we didn't shoehorn AI or machine learning into it, but uh, um, are you basically working with AI now? And is that, I mean, why did you write this book? Why do we need to, well, all right, we kind of know we need to start. We, we, we know we need to work on AI as designers and to be aware of it. But why now? Why is it all of a sudden such an important issue that we, we don't stop hearing about? I think, and so there are like three questions there. Yes, sorry uh, about that. I like <laughs> no, to do okay. that. I like, I like complicated questions. Um, the first one is probably the shortest one to answer. Like, um, am I working with AI in my role as the global design practice lead for travel and transportation at IBM? Um, and the short answer is yes. I don't think it's possible to be working at IBM without having artificial intelligence touch some part of your work. And my job is um, no different. Um, I spend my days um, both working with a team who are bringing some products to market, um, and of course those products are using um, uh, Watson where applicable and cognitive computing where applicable, uh, and also doing some strategic work with our clients. And in those uh, meetings or workshops, almost always the topic of um, artificial intelligence comes up as a potential solution or opportunity for our clients and uh, serving their customers better. So uh, the other thing I get to tell that I like telling uh, is that I work out of the one of the new IBM offices in San Francisco. Um, and it's called informally Watson West. Uh, and one of the most eyebrow raising things about that office is if you go to the corner of Howard and First Street, uh, and look for the sign out in front of the building. It doesn't say IBM Watson. It actually says Watson, and then there's a space, and then it says IBM. Uh, and the relationship of those brands uh, are surprising. Well, maybe perhaps not surprisingly flipped since um, Watson won Jeopardy in 2011. It's been on uh, a, lot of, a lot of the forefront of conversations around what AI is. So... Um, that's the answer to the first question. Yes, uh, my, my work does involve quite a bit, that stuff quite a bit. Uh, and the second part of that question, and I might have missed a third, um, but is the question about why now? Why is artificial intelligence on so heavy on the zeitgeist? 
and on the collective unconscious, in the zeitgeist and on the collective unconscious. Uh, and my opinion on that is because it is now entirely possible and appropriate to be working with AI. Um, not in the sense of the general AI, the you know, C-3PO's or BB-8's uh, in fiction, um, but specifically with the narrow artificial intelligence you can access directly and play with through like Watson's APIs, or I'm aware Microsoft also has a few of its uh, narrow artificial intelligence uh, APIs available publicly. Um, but certainly I know the Watson one's the best. Um, and you can begin to play with that narrow artificial intelligence uh, and the business models are there, the infrastructure is there and the interest is there to, to use narrow AI and cognitive computing in order to solve your users and customers and clients problems. I think also it's a lot in the news, partially for the one of the bad sides of AI is that um, just like the advent of almost all major technologies, thinking here of the industrial revolution, um, the presence of this new technology is going to call is causing um, a fairly seismic shift in the workforce, what it is that we're willing to pay people for and people smartly want to get out in front of this. Um, so I think there's like that, that pull, which is to say, hey, there are great opportunities here and everything exists for you to actually take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, and then there's um, this sort of competitive push, which is to say, uh, if, we, if we don't do it, are we falling behind? Are we not giving our users as much value as we could be? Um, and for both of those reasons, I don't think the hype is gonna I should say the buzz. <laughs> um, there is certainly hype around AI, um, but the conversation around AI, I think, is going to continue for quite some time. So, you know, you asked the question in a way uh, a little earlier about, you, well, not the question, but you you talked about using AI when applicable. I guess my question is, should we also be asking about using AI when ethical? Oh, entirely, entirely. In fact, um, the longest turns out the longest chapter in my book. Um, by just a couple of pages is the ethics chapter. And I think the question of whether technology is good for us at, at a very broad level has been sort of asked since the Luddites um, and the, you know, the saboteurs um, who were throwing wooden shoes into machines. And that was the questions of machinery in the industrial revolution. And now we really do have to ask those questions again. And I think it's both at a cultural level, what jobs do we have on offer? Um, what should we pay people for? What shouldn't we have? Um, and also sort of an individual uh, ethics question, like, um, or, or let me even reframe, not even ethics question, but um, a capabilities question. If I let AI do these things for me as a person, um, will, I, will those skills atrophy? And where will I be when the AI glitches out. How will I recover? Um, so, yeah, uh, I think the, the time to be discussing the ethics and the tactics around AI is like right now. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that I was, uh, I, I took a trip, a uh, day trip outside of New York City yesterday with a friend and we were mulling over how uh, Google's maps, you know, are such a fantastic navigational tool and, and are we losing uh, our navigational muscles, what happens when you, you lose your phone, your, your phone runs out of battery, can you find your way from here to there? Uh, I, I imagine that's kind of germane 
in maybe a too fundamental way, too simple way to the kind of work you're doing right now in travel and transportation. Yeah, I think, um, and actually, interestingly, the topic you've just raised is the thing that I'm most thinking about as a, as a candidate for a next book. So let's talk offline about that a little bit later. But the advent of, of every technology that does a little bit of work for you runs the risk of those atrophying skills. Um, and navigation is certainly one of them. Um, using Google Maps or Waze um, or uh, Apple's direction findings, I think our navigation skills are atrophying a bit. I certainly know uh, my hometown where I grew up. I know those roads as they were a lot better than I know even the Bay Area where I live, those roads, um, partially four ways. Um, but I've had lots of conversations with friends about, oh, well, does that mean that we shouldn't use it? Um, and the answer is, well, of course we should use it because it has some top-down information that no amount of navigational skill will provide. Mm -hmm. That there is an accident on I-80 and boy, how do you really need to go across the Golden Gate Bridge rather than the Bay Bridge um, to avoid a three-hour stop on the freeway is pretty important information. And, and it wouldn't matter how well I knew the roads, you know, that knowledge wouldn't help me with that navigation problem. Um, so I, I do think, though, that the way that we handle the, that information could be done a lot better so that we don't just use Waze or Google Maps as a crutch, uh, but instead we uh, use it as a scaffold. So. You know, that makes me think of, uh, and it seems like there's, there's no day that goes by, I don't think about it, of uh, Stuart Brand's pace layering model. You know, it's like uh, in this particular example, it, there may be some fundamental understanding of place, of the shape of a, a geographic shape of a place and its roads and so forth that we humans are the ones that should have because that's a stable layer. Uh, but then there's what happens in that place uh, that changes from moment to moment, traffic jam, whatever it might be, that are more the outer rings of that model. Maybe, is that what you mean by scaffolding? There's a certain kind of mix of skills and tasks that are shared by human and machine, and we just have to kind of scaffold them out in a conscious way? Um, I actually think that, the, that relying on the humans to do that work um, is... Uh, I'm not going to say wrongheaded. Um, I don't think that we can count on humans doing that work, let's say, at a large scale, at the scale of humanity. Um, and I, I believe it is on the onus is on us as designers and product owners uh, and C-suite types uh, in order to think about, well, is our product simply a crutch for our users or, or are we equipping them um, to do more and better things with the information uh, that they have. Um, so does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. And it, it sort of makes me think really of some of the things you're getting at in your book um, at, at, at a level of, do we want AI to think for us or do for us? Yes, 100%. Um, and in fact, I think um, uh, in the book, and uh, I talk about this quite a bit, I, I personally subdivide narrow artificial intelligence into three categories based on sort of user intent or the user interaction model. Um, there's automation, which sort of seeks to get the human out of the picture. Um, and then there is 
assistive AI that helps you while you're thinking or working on a task. Um, and that's the kind of stuff I think most people think about uh, when they hear narrow AI is like a chatbot. Certainly if I get onto uh, a chat and I want to know, oh, tell me, you know, the least expensive days that I should be thinking about for travel to New Mexico. Um, that is an assistant because, because it is helping me while my attention is on it. Um, and it's that the middle ground between automated, where it's just doing the same thing over and over again, and assistive where your attention is on it, where agent of technology lies. Um, I don't think we have, we have a pretty good practice around automation since we've been doing it since the 1950s. Um, we, have a, we have the tools in place to deal with assistive um, because it's right in line with the tool model that we've been using for the past 40 years. Um, and it's that agentive part that we don't have a good formal practice around. Um, that's part of the reason I, I wrote the book is I, I went out to try and find it as I had come across my sort of third project um, in this sort of undefined realm. And I was like, oh, well, I should get really good and find out, you know, who's written what about it. Found out nobody had. And um, despite that, that there were more and more, as soon as I started to see them, I started to see them all over the place and even see the opportunities where they should be all over the place. Uh, and that's what convinced me that uh, since I couldn't find the book that it needed to be written. And I'm glad you wrote that book. So <laughs> you, you've, you've written a book that covers a, a, a you know, a pretty good chunk uh, and, and a fairly unmapped aspect of a pretty big topic. And, and yet I think one of the things I like best about the book is how practical you are and, and you, you are looking to not just open our minds, but to equip us. What do you think the, you know, someone reading your book is going to be able to do differently or, or that they haven't been able to do before once they've read the book? I think there are probably two categories into which uh, I expect slash hope folks fall into. One is that I, I think it's entirely possible that if you are diligent and have been working in interaction design or product management for many years, you can arrive at this as a logical conclusion of the givens of technology. Oh, wow, if we can, if we have all the information around a particular user need or want, and we have whatever it takes to get that task done, well, why don't we put those things together and just do it for them? And, and those people may have sort of crafted their own version of agent of tech, right? And certainly all the examples that I cite in the book, and there are probably about three dozen of them, um, they didn't have my book to read. And they arrived at this as sort of a, a natural extension, just thinking about problems deeply. And for those people, what I, I hope that they'll get out of the book is um, a, a sense of formalized language. Certainly I wrote the, the, the second section, which is all the set of unique or a set of use cases that are unique to agent of tech. Um, a chance to go back and think very deeply about their product in light of other similar products and say, oh, wow, we really didn't think about uh, the fanfare of launch. We don't really have a good way to pause or restart our agent or even, oh, wait, we haven't really thought about a human intermediary as one of the ways that our products gracefully decays. And for those folks, they might get some hint about, oh, hey, here's something new we can work on. Um, but in my speaking about this topic around the world, um, I, I have, or, or even conducting, I've conducted one workshop at the UX Lisbon, which I think is going on like 
right now, but I did it. I did this workshop last year. Um, the, the thing that I'm more excited about is people who haven't thought about this way of equipping users um, uh, or, or providing an agent for users, I should say. Um, and for those people who are used to thinking of, oh, let's make a tool so that our user can do something. It's a big light bulb that goes off in their head when they say, oh, wow, no, we can actually do it for them and allow that user to become a manager of the task uh, rather than a task doer. Mm -hmm. um, that's the big light bulb, which is to say, oh, hey, I now think about technology and what we offer to users differently. Um, and, and even if folks are a product owner or uh, you know, design consultants say, I know now how to serve users even better for a subset of the things that they want done in the world. I love that, uh, that, that framing as managing. It's funny, I think a lot of us are anxious when we're put in roles of management uh, because we're used to that being uh, one of managing people and not all of us want to do that or can do that. I think it's a little different when you're talking about managing essentially uh, some active piece of code that, that can do something on your behalf. And that's kind of what we're used to doing maybe implicitly, right? I, I think that's why what, what technology is, is for. We, we use it to, to do things for us, but I don't know if we've ever really stepped back and looked at it in that framing. And I think it's pretty eye-opening. Yeah, I think um, the, 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 the metaphor that in grad school um, that, that me and my colleagues and the classmates would go back to a lot is the hammer, right? The hammer is uh, a great physical artifact for thinking about interaction design. It has certain affordances, um, right? There's the, the hard steel, the metal part at the top. There's a very sort of warm, long handle that clearly fits your hand. Um, and you can talk about the uh, the interactions of looking at the hammer and uh, what the state of the nail is and judging and feedback loops and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that metaphor fails um, when talking about agentive technologies. And um, I often will go to either the Roomba uh, as a physical manifestation of this idea um, or more recently going either to a pet feeder or like an alarm clock. Um, in each of these cases, it's something that you can think about that sort of uh, monitors a data stream for you. And then when it finds a trigger, enacts some behavior that you want to have happen. Uh, whether that's, oh, it's three o'clock, vacuum my floors. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, eight in the morning and I'm not at home, so feed my cat. Or whether it is, um, you know, I am literally unconscious in sleep mode uh, and it is now 5 a.m. and I need to wake up for that conference call. Um, the, the hammer fails utterly as a metaphor for those things. Um, and even though there are lots of software agents, I really like the physicality of those other metaphors to get the idea across um, that can get people to sort of realize how different uh, that, that core metaphor needs to be. As you describe it, I keep wondering if there will be some sort of uh, uh, software to operate a hammer. <laughs> go, go, like, you know, you're at a work site, go, go hammer these nails for oh, yeah. a couple hours. And the rules are, you know, don't hammer anyone or anything that's not a nail, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, who knows? That's laws of hammering. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, we could go on, uh, but um, 
I think uh, uh, you've done us a great service, not only uh, with this podcast in terms of framing the bigger picture around why we need to be thinking about AI and, and some of the specifics of agentive technology, but um, thanks for, for writing this book. Uh, the, the early feedback has been really great. People seem to really be enjoying it and you're, you're opening a lot of other eyes too. So uh, Chris uh, Nossel uh, from, um, oh, he's got a long job title. Uh, I've already lost it, but uh, Global Design Lead for uh, Travel and Transportation at IBM. Is that close enough? That's perfect. Oh, excellent. Uh, my memory's not totally shot. Uh, <laughs> he's done a lot of great things in the field uh, at Cooper, now at IBM. He's, he's, uh, as I mentioned, uh, been a co-author of About Face, uh, of Make It So, and now his newest book just came out from uh, Rosenfeld Media, up-and-coming publisher. It's designing <laughs> agentive technology, AI, that works for people. Uh, we'd love for you to read it. Uh, you can go to rosefieldmedia.com or Amazon and pick up a copy. And uh, if you've read it, we'd love for you to post a review to Amazon about how you, you liked it, or even if you didn't like it that much. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Lou.